Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hello, this is Neil Garfield, broadcasting from Duval County, Florida, and this is Thursday, February 20th, 2020, 2020. It's my birthday. I'm 73 years old. I've been practicing law since May 31st, 1977. Before that, I was an investment banker on Wall Street, so I know the game. The problem you face is that everyone, including judges, thinks they know the game, but they don't. And that is exactly what Wall Street has been counting on. And that is why they keep winning unwinnable cases. Or to put it more precisely, why they keep winning cases that they should not be allowed to win. And that's the problem. Judges don't realize they need an expert interpreter to tell them what happened with the loan origination and what happened with the debt in particular. They think the loan was funded in good faith, but it wasn't. The loan origination was merely a stepping stone to selling derivative unregulated securities. So they don't realize they need an interpreter, which means you got to convince them they need an interpreter. A lot of people submit reports, analysis, affidavits, and so forth without convincing the judge first of a reason why he needs to read it or consider it. Whether you admit it or not, you have the same problem if you're listening to this. As Ronaldo Reyes put it 12 years ago when he was asset manager for Deutsche Bank, it's all very what he called counterintuitive. Counterintuitive means against intuition. It's another way of saying it doesn't make sense. But securitization does make sense. And it makes sense even if it is practiced illegally. Some judges think that foreclosures are all about repayment of debt when they're not. Nobody in any case involving securitized uh, or loans subject to claims uh, of securitization, nobody's carrying your loan as a receivable. That means if they get money, which you thought was payment of the debt, they record it as cash flow and as either revenue or some type of suspense 
on some uh, balance sheet entry or offshore fictitious book book entry that appears nowhere on the books and records of the company that got the money. Who's that company? That's the investment banker that participated in the sale of certificates to investors in exchange for a promise from the investment banker to make what turned out to be discretionary payments. Foreclosures are just vehicles to rake in more profit. The process in nearly all cases does not repay any debt. The foreclosure participants pocket the money as revenue. And that's the true nature of that, I think, is a conspiracy. I think it's a RICO conspiracy. But that's not a defense. You have to know that in order to put on a good defense. Judges do what they do because they're doing what they're supposed to do in the absence of a credible defense. Because once a document is prepared in a form that is recognizable by the judge and acceptable under a statute, it is facially valid, even if it is entirely fraudulent, fabricated, forged, backdated, robo-signed, or robo-notarized. It is still facially, on its face, valid. And that means the court is allowed and even required to consider the content of such a document or testimony as presumptively true. In the absence of a credible defense impeaching the credibility of the document or the testimony of the source of the words or data, the judge has no choice but to rule in favor of the party who gave the court that testimony and those documents. So if the document is an assignment of mortgage and it recites that value was paid, then it is legally presumptively true that value was paid for the debt and not just the mortgage. And that satisfies Article 9, Section 203 of the Uniform Commercial Code as adopted by all U.S. jurisdictions. It's presumptively true that value was paid even though no money or value was really paid in exchange for ownership of the debt. Legal presumptions are only supposed to be applied when the source is credible. Like, for example, if it's a third party with no dog in the race. Given the fact that the servicers and banks have admitted to fabricated million, to fabricating millions of documents and have been paying hundreds of billions of dollars in settlements to investors, government agencies, and homeowners, it's very difficult to understand why judges are applying such presumptions from such untrustworthy sources. But it's also true that most homeowners do not present a credible, persuasive case for applying that information in this particular case such that the source is untrustworthy and therefore the presumption doesn't apply. So the judges do apply them 
And that is a fact. And they are inclined to apply those presumptions. And that is a fact. You have to deal with it. Attack the presumption or rebut it. That is your choice. Attack the, 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 the existence of the presumption or rebut the presumption and admit that it exists. But when rebutting a presumption, the burden is not as high as most people think it is. All you need to do is raise sufficient doubt such that the presumption should not apply and thus that the party using it must now prove their case with real facts rather than presumed facts. So, like in the example of value being paid as required by Article 9 of the UCC, instead of presuming that value was paid, they'd have to show that value was paid. Canceled check, proof of payment of some kind, entries in the books of record, um, uh, potentially agreements regarding it, and closing documents regarding it. The burden shifts back to the foreclosure mill if you can do that. And it has been done thousands and thousands of times. You don't hear about those because those cases are all settled under seal of confidentiality. Most so-called defenses which inevitably lose in court consist of denials of the facts asserted or recited in documents. That's what I call whining. It's not defending. The fact that you're right is not enough. You must persuade the judge that there are too many gaps and inconsistencies to apply those presumptions of fact and law. And once you raise the inference that the documents are not and even might not be credible by themselves and require separate corroboration, then you are on the path to victory. The reason is simple. I've said it a lot of times on this show, on TV, on radio, apart from this show, the blog, and other articles published in several countries. The foreclosure mills and their clients do not have any corroboration. They only have the legal presumptions. And that's been enough for them to conduct millions of foreclosures leading to forced sale of homes and then distribution of sale proceeds to anyone except a person or entity that paid value for the debt. That's the truth. But if you are looking for success in court, you have to believe it. If you want to project passion and confidence in your position, you need to understand the case and believe in your position. No matter how right you are, if you present a weak case, you're probably going to lose. If you don't understand why the case is not really about foreclosure for an unpaid debt, then you're going to come off as someone who is trying to get out of a just debt by using technical objections. Would you rule for such a person 
if you were the judge. They owe the money. They owe the money to this person, but there's some technical problem. You'd find a way to rule in favor of the person to whom the money was owed or who you thought was owed the money. And that's what the judges are doing. Yes, you can use what is contained in expert reports as the basis for pleading defenses or claims. Yes, you can use such reports as the basis for opposing objections to discovery demands. And you can even sometimes file the reports as attachments to your pleadings or memoranda. But hear this. The reports are not evidence. Not even the affidavits are evidence, but they can be treated as though they're evidence in a motion for summary judgment or some other evidentiary hearing. Without evidence, you fail to rebut the presumptions being applied by the judge. So he's going to, he or she is going to apply it, and that's how the bank's are prevailing even through all of these sham conduit non-entity names that they're using to as 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 the name of a claimant in foreclosure and that they're using to submit a credit bid based upon a debt that they don't own and assigning the bid to someone else just to make it more confusing and to spread the money around from the proceeds of the foreclosure to people who want it as revenue. The, even if the court uses its discretion to allow the submission of a report or affidavit as evidence, which they generally won't do, that doesn't mean the judge will look at it, much less rely upon it to draw conclusions of fact or law. In fact, it's a pretty good signal when a judge says, yes, I'll admit this report into evidence, knowing full well that it's not really admissible evidence. Pretty good signal he's going to rule against the homeowner. But he wants to make it look like that he's being fair and that due process has occurred. The first rule is that everything you say and do in court must be seen by the judge as relevant to the case. Now, the judge comes in thinking he knows the story. After all, it's a foreclosure, and every judge knows what a foreclosure is. In order to establish relevance, you need to tell a story, your story. And that is what I refer to when I say something about the defense narrative. If you can get the judge talking about your defense narrative, then you're already turning the ship a little bit. If, you, if you're merely complaining about deficiencies, then you're really tracking the narrative of the foreclosure mill and you have no control over what's happening in court or what's going to happen. In most cases, your story, your narrative, should simply be that the foreclosure will not result in payment of the debt, even if it is successful. 
And you start with that by showing that this particular claimant has never been part of a transaction in which it paid value in exchange for ownership of the debt. That should be enough under existing law to defeat the foreclosure. But most judges think that eventually the proceeds of foreclosure will find its way up to a party or down to a party that has paid value for the debt and that it will result in writing off the debt on the books of record for that entity or person or whatever. That's not how securitization is working, though. That's not what happens. In order to tell the story based upon that, you need first to believe it, and the biggest problem is that even borrowers think that foreclosure is only uh, technically uh, deficient, not that it is just plain wrong. It's wrong to ignore the facts of securitization in which the debt is paid off in a series of transactions so that nobody is carrying the debt as an asset and nobody has any potential liability for default on the debt because they've already been paid off. And don't forget, the holders of certificates, the people who are called investors, all they have is an IOU from the investment bank doing business under the name of a trust, which the trust probably doesn't exist. But even if it did, there's been no transaction in which uh, the investment bank or the uh, uh, or, or the investors uh, paid value for a debt owed from the borrowers. And even if you were to construe the securitization as saying that, well, the investment bank got a hold of the money and then they funded the loan, well, if you just left it at that, then yes, but why didn't the investment bank get ownership of the debt? They didn't. There was no document giving them that. And the reason is that it was their plan, and it's what they did, to get rid of that asset and all the liabilities that go along with it, including lender liabilities, which are never disclosed, within 30 days of the start of the uh, so-called trust. The investors are not beneficiaries of that trust. They have no right title or interest to any debt, note, or mortgage. So when you have a claim of U.S. Bank on behalf of certificate holders and they don't spell out what the certificates are and they don't identify the, the holders, it's because they're trying to give a false impression that the investors are beneficiaries of the trust when they are not. The beneficiary of the trust is the investment bank. In most cases, in most cases where the homeowner wins, it's not because they prove that the role of the investment bank. 
it's that they raise sufficient doubt as to whether anyone in the chain has ever paid value for this debt. And secondarily, that affects the way the judge perceives the paperwork and whether or not it is credible as to memorializing some transaction. It isn't credible. But up front, when he's just looking at a facially valid document, it is credible. If you want to get a report into evidence and the contents considered by the court, you need to have live sworn testimony from its author. In motions, a sworn affidavit may be sufficient, but if there's really a dispute over the contents, then an evidentiary uh, hearing will be ordered by the judge. Reports are most effective when they show a methodology of investigation. Here's what I did. Here's what I was looking for. Here's what I found. So they show the factual results. And they do it in clear, bullet-like fashion, not rambling, so that the judge can see exactly what it is that the homeowner or the homeowner's lawyer is saying and what the corroboration is for the homeowner's story, the homeowner's defense narrative. Reports are least effective when they contain mostly factual conclusions and reports are not even credible if the author is not licensed to practice law, but nonetheless gives voice to legal conclusions. All judges are lawyers. They see a legal opinion from somebody who's not a lawyer They it undermines the credibility of the entire report, even the factual presentation. Your goal in presentation is to show the judge that there is a true story here that in fact is inconsistent with the assertions, allegations, and presumptions being invoked by the foreclosure mill. Your goal is to get the judge to believe that the claimant in a foreclosure has not sustained its burden in proving the claim. Your goal is not to establish that the players are all villains who belong in jail. You try to do that, you come off sounding like a conspiracy theorist, even though you're right. Your goal is not to prove that there is no debt, no valid note, or no valid mortgage or deed of trust even though that's where you're probably headed. Evidence is not whatever it is you think you're holding in your hand or in a file. Evidence is not being right. Evidence is something in the court record that was admitted into evidence by a ruling from the judge, either without objection 
or over the objection of the other party. Everything else is information. If the judge doesn't order it into the court record as evidence, it's not evidence. You may want it to be evidence. You may think the judge committed error in excluding it as evidence, but that's for another day. It's not evidence until you get it in. Biggest mistake I know of that, that lawyers make when they're trying cases is they try to get something into evidence and they fail and they don't try again. They don't follow up in some other way. Very often following up will get a document that's previously been excluded to be ordered into the court record as evidence. And if you tell the right story along with it, then the judge is going to start considering what's, what's contained in that document. It must be relevant even if it's not particularly credible. Credibility is something that the judge weighs later. So you can get something in, but that's where the story comes in. Credibility does not work for you unless you've got a credible story that goes with that evidence. Something that's corroborated by as many other things as possible. Opinions are worthless unless you convince the judge that he or she should rely upon an expert opinion because the judge can't understand the case without the opinion. It's very rare that a judge will agree on that point. But an expert who presents facts that are inconsistent with the assertions of the foreclosure mills is far more effective than any expert who gives opinions. And you're really on point if you get a judge to start asking questions of the expert from the bench. That's often a sign that they're starting to see something that is bothering them about this case in particular, and that's all you want. You don't want to condemn all securitization and, and all of Wall Street and all of the finance industry. You get to tell your story by asking specific, well-worded discovery demands about ownership and authority over the debt, and I would add past history of the same named plaintiff or claimant as to the proceeds of foreclosure sales. You'll find that in virtually no case where the securitization involved has the claimant ever received proceeds from any foreclosure. The opposition won't answer because they can't. There was no financial transaction in which the named claimant ever paid value for the debt or received ownership of the debt from someone who paid for it, and therefore there was no reason that the named claimant would ever receive the money, even if the named claimant existed, which it often does not. As I've previously discussed, that's when you go the route of a motion to compel, motion, uh, uh, you file your report of your expert in support of your discovery, and then get an order from the court requiring the position to, uh, the opposition to answer, and then you file motion for sanctions and raise the inference that the foreclosure never was about seeking payment of a debt. And then the other way is to have your expert sign an affidavit in support of your motion for summary judgment uh, describing methodology in which he found no evidence of any such financial transaction and, in fact, found evidence that says there is no such financial transaction and, and 
attaches exhibits to the affidavit so the judge can track why this guy is saying what he's saying or this woman or whoever it is. So the expert has to be able to survive deposition and cross-examination, and that means he must be sure of ground and able to defend it. So trial work is like weaving threads together. If you want to make a garment, you don't leave the threads hanging. You weave them together so in the end it looks like a sweater. Good trial work doesn't rely on the judge to see what the threads could become. Good trial work assumes, without being obnoxious about it, that the judge knows nothing about your case. Good trial work assumes that you can convince a judge that is biased against you that they ought to change their minds. That's it for tonight. Happy birthday to me. See you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.